You know, to uh, tear down your father's altar and uh, tear down his sacred pole. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, I broke my mom's favorite piggy bank with a football <laughs> in the house. And um, the townspeople didn't come for my head or want to kill me, but I could see how that would make people angry. <laughs> Our text this morning introduces us to Gideon. And we're introduced to this, this character here as we continue in our series uh, through the book of Judges. But this particular account here, we have a longer call and commissioning narrative at the very start of our reading this morning, and longer than we've already seen in the other judges that have been listed. Uh, certainly, Barak introduces us to a little bit of a commissioning narrative uh, when he's in conversation with Deborah. But here in our text, uh, we get a lot longer uh, interaction with, with questions and answers uh, that are being asked here. And it's important for us to note uh, some of those places and some of those things that are being said here, to take note of those as we read here. But the figure who emerges in all of this, the judge deliverer that we have before us, is far from what we might imagine the type of character that God would be calling to be this person living in this particular role. And so what we see here is Gideon, uh, he's, he's not in a good shape for the role he's called to. But his people might be in a worse shape. You know by now the cycle, bad behavior, uh, begetting oppression at the hands of bad actors, cries of deliverance, of course, and subsequent rescue, and then we hit repeat with that. And chapter 6 begins with that cycle. You look at verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian. How bad could that be? How bad could it be to be in the hand of Midian? I've never been in the hand of Midian. How bad could it be to be in that hand? Well, the author puts it this way in verse 6. Israel was greatly impoverished because of Midian. And we might expect, uh, as we might expect from the cycle, uh, the people, of course, will cry out. God will hear their cries. And then God sends, right? God sends. But God does not send a deliverer judge at first in chapter 6. There's a little variation we have here to the theme. It says in verse 8, God sends a prophet. That a prophet comes first. Not a deliverer judge. Not a champion of their generation, but a prophet. And as prophets do, this prophet has a message. And this message comes from God, and it's a doozy. Look what it says to the people. I led you up out from Egypt and brought you out of the house of slavery. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live. But you have not given heed to my voice. In case you missed that, let's break that down, what was just said in that message. Number one is this. God is faithful to act. You'll see that in that message, verses 8 through 10. God is faithful to act. Remember years ago, I remember there was a state senator who was running for re-election. You might remember this uh, re-election campaign. I won't say who the senator was, but since we've had two senators for a long time, you can probably imagine who it was. I remember the tagline to the ads. It said, Senator so-and-so works for you. Right? That was the ad campaign. There must have been some thinking amongst these campaign workers that the populace no longer believed <laughs> that that senator was working for us. That what is oftentimes said about our senators here in this state is they now behold the other Washington more than they do their home state, that their priorities may have shifted. You've heard that kind of thing, I'm sure, uh, in campaigns that go out, uh, different advertisements. But wavering commitments is not the way that God operates. God doesn't waver. 
God's commitment is strong. When God says God is faithful, God defines faithfulness because of that commitment. And through the prophet's message, we can see how God's faithfulness takes shape for the people of God throughout the ages. The words, I led, I delivered, I drove them out, I gave. All of these are grounded in covenant commitments that God has made to God's people. And it's grounded also in who God is. I am the Lord, your God. Their God works for them. That's a promise. But the second thing that we see in that, that little text, that message from the prophet, is this. The people, on the other hand, they failed to remember. There's a fail, failure of memory here. The prophet makes clear the people's offenses in verse 10. You shall not pay reverence to the gods of the Amorites, but you have not given heed to my voice. We see that right there. The stark difference between the one who is faithful and the ones who are not couldn't be more clear. God continues to hear their cry and take action. God's people don't heed the voice of the one to whom they are bound in covenant. And they, in turn, fail to act. And that's to their own peril. And we see that here in Judges. We see that here in chapter 6. But yet God still acts on behalf of God's people. We used the phrase before, even so. Even so, God will take action. And will call a delivered judge to come to their aid. And when we meet our champion, he's hiding in a wine press. <laughs> and he's threshing wheat. He doesn't want the Midianites to take his food away from him. In other words, we have a man who's living in fear, doing something quite ordinary. He's doing everyday chores, threshing the wheat, hanging out in the wine press, trying to protect his interests there. But that will soon change when he's visited by what is described as an angel of the Lord in verses 11 and 12. And this is no ordinary angel. So for a second here, we need to, we need to wipe our memories, all right? So if you've ever seen Touched by an Angel, you need to wipe your memory for a second. As we start talking about the angel of the Lord, I don't want you to add an Irish accent to it, all right? So I don't want you to do that. If you've seen Highway to Heaven, right? We went there. If you like little Michael Landon fans here. If you've seen, yeah, that was going way back, wasn't it? Jimmy, how do you know about Highway to Heaven? All right, if you can go back there, or any number of shows that we see with angelic uh, persons who come on behalf of other folks, you need to wipe your, wipe your mind of those things for a second here. When we talk about the angel of the Lord, this is a figure that shows up in Judges chapter 6, but it's not the first time in Judges. We see it in Judges chapter 2. We see the figure in Deborah's song in Judges chapter 5. Of course, it's not limited to the book of Judges at all. In fact, it comes to us throughout the scriptures. We see in Genesis 16, the angel of the Lord comforts Hagar. Right? So Hagar is in the wilderness, the angel Lord comes and speaks. The calling, uh, when Abraham is there going to sacrifice his son, the voice that comes is said to come from the angel of the Lord. And so we see that in Genesis 22. Or even Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3. The angel of the Lord uh, shows up in that text. Or opposing Balaam and standing in the roadway, Numbers 22, angel of the Lord. So this figure shows up at prominent places, and those are just a few of the places where the angel of the Lord will show up in Scripture. And there's complexity when we come to this, this sense of who this angel of the Lord is. When you start reading the passage, and even if you read Judges 6, things get real confusing real quick. You start reading through there going, who's talking right now? Is it the angel of the Lord? Is it the Lord? Is it the angel of God? Who are we talking about right now at this moment? That the author puts these things in there. Because we see figures with this angel of the Lord, we see 
the name, the Lord, associated with it. Obviously a prominent uh, person, prominent location of the name. Uh, the manner in which this figure speaks. They speak uh, for the Lord, uh, but they also speak as the Lord uh, in the text. And we see how the hearers respond to this figure. Even Gideon responding to it. So this is no ordinary angel. We're not talking about just your run-of-the-mill messenger from God here. And the author and the biblical authors, they create a sense of complexity by creating a bit of confusion in the wording. And they want to draw us out. They want to draw us into an arena, draw us out of our normal thinking, and draw us into an arena where we might imagine that here, when we talk about this prominence, we're talking about not only one who speaks for God at this point, but we talk about God, God's self, speaking at this moment. But this encounter that Gideon's having is having one with God. If you want to geek out on Angel of the Lord, I encourage you uh, to head out to the Bible Project. They've done a great video uh, and a great uh, writing up of, of all the different texts about the Angel of the Lord, and for you to take a look at that. It's certainly a uh, certainly interesting thing as you read through the scriptures to see how God has operated uh, throughout history with God's people in this idea. And so here's Gideon, and here he is, this person who's afraid, who's doing ordinary things, and he's visited by the most spectacular of persons. And we can see here that in Gideon, in our own lives, that fear can take a grip of us, can take a hold of us. One of my favorite stories, I think I've mentioned this before from childhood, is a, a story by Dr. Seuss called What Was I Scared Of? It's a story of a bear-like figure uh, who is, uh, he's visited at night by a pair of green pants with nobody inside them. I was trying to figure a way to explain that to you, but it's probably best just to say it was a pair of green pants that was disembodied and walking around. And he's afraid when he sees these pants. And we understand that fear can take a grip of us. And here's Gideon in his moment of fear and he asks the question of the ages. But note what the angel of the Lord says to him when it, the angel calls him. It says to him, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Right? The Lord is with you, you mighty warrior. And you imagine Gideon who's afraid and just doing ordinary stuff this moment. He's going, uh, wrong and wrong. <laughs> you, got, you got that wrong. God isn't with us, is what Gideon supposes here. And I'm no mighty warrior. I'm just a man who's afraid this moment. Now, we should pause here that this leaves us here at an interpretive uh, why in the road. I've heard many a times the, the Gideon uh, story retold and repackaged in a way that I think is overly American. Uh, talking about Gideon as this one who, he overcomes the odds. It's a story of personal victory. Uh, he believes in himself, makes his dreams come true. Isn't that just a lovely story? I wish that was true. <laughs> It's just a great story, but there's, there's something different in Gideon's response here. I think something more real. He asks the existential question of our age, I think, of, and of any generation is asked here. He says, but sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened to us? Why did all these things happen to us? This fearful man who's living in hiding, doing ordinary stuff, asks the biggest question that's on our hearts. And I imagine here at this moment where we live, in our time in history, when we face a pandemic, when we face the prospect of war on many fronts, that we too might be asking the same question. 
when we face economic challenges, or even if it wasn't even broad community, societal-wide problems, it was just personal, individual, why did that doctor say that to me? Why am I struggling with this disease, this illness, this challenge, this setback? If God was truly with us, why has all this happened to me? Why am I experiencing that? Of course, Gideon goes on to say, where are all his wonderful deeds that our ancestors recounted to us in verse 13? In other words, and he's drawing on that imagery of the deliverance from Egypt, where's our deliverance? Where's my deliverance? Where's my promise? Where's the good God when I need God? And isn't that our question? Where's God in all of this? Of course, this is not posited in honest inquiry at this moment. But it's rather resigning to the notion that God has abandoned me or even isn't real. And our, our, as our next steps move away oftentimes, we move away from God. We just ask the question, then we move away from God. And really the challenge for us is to move toward. That we're supposed to lean in, not leave. But isn't that our temptation in all that? And I imagine Gideon here at this moment is feeling all this same angst. Past nostalgia isn't enough for me to contend with the challenges of today. Your stories of the good old days doesn't help me today. And that's what Gideon names here. But perhaps God is wanting to do something more. Maybe that's what we see here in Gideon. That God wants to do something different than what we give God credit for. Gideon senses that God would be present in removing the problem. God, take away the problem. Make it be gone. I want it out of here. But God wants to do something different. God wants to remake Gideon. He's not going to remove the problem. He's going to remake Gideon in this process here. Verse 14, go in this might of yours and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. I hereby commission you. There's a natural fear in Gideon, of course, that he isn't up to the challenge, that he's not the right guy. You got the wrong person. You stopped at the wrong door. You're in the wrong wine press at this moment. You got the wrong guy here. And that fear, of course, is one that shows up throughout Gideon's story. We'll see it in verse 27. We'll also see it in 36 in the verses that follow. God's saying to Gideon, the guy who's hiding, you're going to be the Moses for your generation, drawing on that Exodus language once more. And here's the thing. You're not going to be alone. You're not going to go it alone. Verse 16, I will be with you. I will be with you. In this process, I will be with you. Of course, I think of Hudson Taylor, that giant of a missionary to China who said, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. And here's that moment. A weak person, a weak person can do great things. An ordinary person can do the extraordinary, not because of who they are, but because of who God is, and if God is present with them. I think about Gideon here at this moment and drawing back to that sense of fear and the, that idea of fear contorting our lives, causing us to stop, causing us to pause and not really to move forward in the things that God calls us to, that it moves us into odd shapes, if it were. Think of that character again from that Seuss book, he goes out at night. He's going to pick a peck of snide at night. He's out there. He's in that snide field. He's hiding out, doing his errands. 
The pants still find him. Gideon's the same type of person. Doing things at night. Goes out at night to take down the, the poles, take down the altar. He fears his family and community. And of course, in verse 30, we see he has good reason. They want to kill him. They want to kill him. That's their response there. But he also has a good reason to rejoice. Because even in their attempt to rename Gideon, even in the community's attempt to call him a name that essentially just says Baal will get vengeance, Baal never gets the vengeance. And so we might imagine now that Gideon turned a corner, that his fear is now replaced by certainty, that God truly is present in his life, but not quite. I named this next section of the sermon, I just simply called it fleeced. It just says fleeced in my notes. There's an old Russian proverb. It seems like the right time in history to bring out Russian proverbs, doesn't it? It's an old Russian proverb. I'm not, I've never taken the Russian language. I've never studied it, so I will not try to pronounce it. I have it written here in my notes. I'm not going to harm the Russian people by my pronunciation here. But according to one source I read, it literally means that a responsible person always verifies everything before committing himself to a common business with anyone, even if that anyone is totally trustworthy. It's an old Russian proverb. Of course, if that sounds familiar, you probably remember Ronald Reagan, right? Ronald Reagan would say the same proverb, at least American version of this, all the time. Trust, but verify. That's Reagan. Politicians since then have credited Reagan with that. But it comes from an old Russian proverb, is what he's drawing on there. There's also another story that Gorbachev was really upset with Reagan for using it too many times. But trust, but verify. And that seems to be what Gideon's up to in the latter part of our reading. In verses 36 and following, apparently he's never too far removed from his fear and his uncertainty. Even when he's seen victory, he still has fear. Does that sound a little bit like your life? Sometimes we take big steps forward and a lot of little steps backwards. We have to take more big steps forward and some more backwards. That we still harbor those places of fear. But that's Gideon here. Uh, but remember what we've learned so far in Judges and what we've heard in our text here about our hero, about our hero in the text. Not our champion, but about our hero. God is faithful and remains faithful. Baal failed to take action, failed to take Gideon out of the scene, but God does take action, that God does not fail. And the fleece, an act to verify is yet one more example of God's faithfulness here in Gideon's life. That God will be faithful in the big things, like protecting him and helping him to serve as deliverer of his people, and in the small things. You want to see a fleece that's wet? You got a fleece that's wet. You want it dry? You got it dry. That God works on behalf of the weak and the strong. I'm reminded of a story in Mark's Gospel. A story of a dad that needed help from Jesus. There's no other way to put it. This dad, and it could have been a mom easily, a parent whose child is struggling, whose child is possessed by a spirit and has been since their childhood, is unable to speak, and who goes into convulsions. And that those convulsions are so severe that sometimes it will throw the child into dangerous situations, like bodies of water where it might drown, or into fire where they might be burned. This parent needs help. And Jesus can do that for them. They believe. This dad believes that. 
They believe it. Do you remember what the dad said when Jesus challenged him on his statement? The dad says, he kind of hedges his bet. If you can, if you can. And Jesus challenges him. Dad says at that moment, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. These, of course, the belief and unbelief swirl around in our lives and throughout our lives. It's not uncommon for us to find ourselves in places where we have strong faith and belief and trust only seconds later to have a doubt creep in and uncertainty or even go through a season of that. We start asking the question again, where is God? Where is my faith? What type of person am I? How can I be so mixed up and messed up? How come I can't toe the line? How come I can't hold secure in these things? How come I can't be the person I imagine I'm supposed to be? But remember this, that God isn't deterred, as we see in Gideon's story, by our unbelief and our weakness. Gideon will still be a mighty warrior. Gideon is still a mighty warrior. The father still received his son back, restored. And God's people are never abandoned, but rather they are delivered. In closing, this past week I was trying to buy a video game controller online. Has anyone ever tried to do that? Try to buy a video game controller online? Talk about a modern dilemma. I was looking at the controllers online. I came across a term in the Amazon uh, page where it has all the you know, people write their reviews. I had never heard this term before, um, but I'm sure I've lived into it. Um, bricking. It's bricking. Have you heard of this term before? It's bricking. It talks about when a device, you think about one of these controllers and stuff, stops the function. It stops functioning. It just dies or something. You can't get back working again. And in effect, it becomes something other than what it was originally intended to be it becomes a brick. <laughs> you probably have several of these at your home in drawers or on shelves, different places. You're not quite sure what you should do with it. But I spent a lot of money on it, but it doesn't work. There's probably those cluttering up somewhere in your house in your life. I was thinking about that, that term brick, and I was thinking how easy that can become part of our spiritual lives. How our lives of faith can easily become, we could have bricking take shape and form in our lives. Where we cease to function the way we are called to. That we become less loving, less kind, less communal, less generous, less brave, less faithful. But that's not who God wants us to be. That's not who God wants you to be. And God takes action on your behalf to help you and me not to be those people. The one who is present to us, the one who promises never to leave or forsake us. We hear that in Deuteronomy, we hear that in Joshua, we hear at the end of Hebrews. That this same one takes action, took action then, and takes action now. Think of that line from Prince Caspian. Aslan, talking to Susan, says, You have listened to fears, child. Come, let me breathe on you. Forget them. Are you brave again? We need the Spirit of God to blow on us once more as God's people. We need God to give us courage once more because we don't live in a day and age that's easier than it was yesterday. We need that breath to come on us. The good news is that God has supplied that for us in Jesus Christ and that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can experience that. And that God takes action for you and for me and has taken action, decisive action. And as God breathes on us, 
calling us to be more courageous, God also gives us a bolder name, gives us a better calling. It's bestowed on us not by ourselves, not by our community. It's not the name you call yourself. It's not the one the community calls you, but it's one that your creator gives you. It's one that stands true. My prayer is that we might faithfully remember and take faithful action because of it. May it be so in our generation and all our lives. Amen. Let us pray.